Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Gals of Geekdom podcast. I am one of your hosts, Crystal Williams, and I'm joined by my equally talented, fun, awesome co-host, Lizzie. Hi. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Mine are whatever. <laughs> whatever is the best. Whatever's the mood. <laughs> I feel that. It's a mood. It's a gender. I saw the Beetlejuice musical. Oh, you did? Okay. This weekend, by the way. That was fun. That was a good time. I. It seems fun. You know, Beetlejuice seems to, from what I've observed, and just very little, uh, is, like, Beetlejuice, like, the same sort of role that, like, let's say the genie would play in Aladdin? Yeah. I mean, different, but, like... No, I know what you mean. It's like, or Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean. Like, he's not, he's the memorable character. Right, and, and in the, I know in the, the musical versions, like, breaking fourth wall, modern type jokes kind of throwing in there, I would imagine. A lot more fourth wall breaking in the, in the stage show, yeah. But in the, mm-hmm. but in that, which is a good call. Um, because, it, like, it, like. It worked in uh, Aladdin. It works a lot. That, 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 this precise type of model of fourth wall breaking works a lot better on a stage. Yeah. With an audience that you're actively working off of. Um, that it does, it, which doesn't mean, which isn't to say that it's never good in TV or movies because it absolutely can be. But I think you need to be a lot more judicious with it in a, in, in a film. Yeah. Um, when you're on a live stage, first of all, just in and of itself, your um, suspension of disbelief is doing a lot more work with a, a live musical than it is with a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right from the get, a stage show is just more fantastical, um, and you're much more aware that you are that people are performing a show for you. Right. In, in a space like that. So it makes it a lot easier to sell the thing where Beetlejuice turns and speaks directly to the audience. That um, makes sense. So much of the show. And it works really, really well. So they keep this movie, the stage version, and again, this is, I think, was um, very, very good because you have to change things about your story when you're on a stage versus a, mo- a movie. <laughs> um, the stage version kind of sets Beetlejuice up as the narrator okay of the story i feel that that makes sense in a way that probably wouldn't have worked for the movie but worked really well for this for the stage show um it gives it leans a lot more into lydia's lydia's preoccupation with death and the macabre uh coming from the fact that she's still actively mourning her dead mother um, so they, they lean into that as um, a character arc for her a lot more than the movie does. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It's 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 a little bit less like an angst, just an angsty teenager who's butting heads with her dad and more a matter of she and her dad are going through the mourning process. Okay. And ways that are at odds to with each other. That sounds like an interesting thing. It is, and it were, I think it works really, really well, and they managed to balance that with um, Delia, mm-hmm. <laughs> who is Catherine O'Hara's character from the from the movie, for anyone right. who doesn't 
Perhaps yeah. I didn't recall the names. But um, the way they work that in is just it's, it's kind of like the dad is rushing to move on and kind of replace her mom. And Lydia's like, no, I'm not ready to move on from my dead mom yet. And and a lot of the her primary motivating factor through the, through the show is that she's trying to she thinks she can contact her mom with the help of of the of the of of the ghosts in her house. Okay. Those changes actually make a lot of sense. They do. And they, I think they work really well. It does mean that they also have kind of restructure, um, when not Gina Davis and not Alec Baldwin. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, they kind of restructure, um, when and where they go to the netherworlds and the oh. role that the netherworld plays. Um, and how much to what degree they, they know how dangerous Beetlejuice is. They kind of have to figure that out on their own. Okay. They don't really get a warning. They try to work with him and then they realize that he's not a safe person for them to be doing things with and then they try. So, but it's, and they also lean in with, with those two characters, they lean into the yuppie angle a lot more. Okay. Uh, they're a lot goofier than they feel. Here's the thing, they feel less like the central characters and Lydia is more of our main protagonist. I okay because in the film, yeah, they definitely are the uh, in the those film. Those two are still at the central and most our, important. Our characters. central characters are definitely those two, um, and in the show, our central character is Lydia. That makes sense considering how Lydia has kind of become like, like a especially the cartoon Our-ful. became more central. She's she's, a, she's an icon to the franchise. Right, I totally understand that change. That makes sense. Yeah, and it works, to be clear. Like, I think, I don't think, like, this all, this all works for, um, making your musical with which, which characters get ballads and which characters get the big main character song moments and with the character arcs that you can carve out for these people. Like, it works better on the stage with this, with these changes. And it's really, really good. The songs are a fun time. I liked, I had a good time with all of them. Okay. Um, and it's a fun it's a fun show. Anybody if you like the movie, you'll like the stage show and if anybody was on the fence about going to see it, it's touring across the country right now, so um the 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 Broadway company is. So I I don't know if it's coming near you, I recommend going to see it if it piques your interest at all. You'll be you'll come out of it happy, I think. That's good. Um I've seen a few of these uh, stage musicals where they've adapted like like movies, and I feel like they're very hit and miss, or a lot of the times they miss for me. Uh, so I wasn't sure, but considering how like I've seen this this show in particular gain like a pretty strong cult following around it, it sounds like this one was a success. I think so. That that's cool. I'm always like hesitant like i the stuff i've seen from the mean girls musical didn't really appeal to me i'm going to see mean girls in february i hope you enjoy it i just haven't seen anything that liked that i saw that like made me excited for that one but yeah i've heard mixed things oh okay yeah wasn't even sure about the heathers one 
either. Heather's is great though. I, okay, I have never seen Heather's live, but I I'm obs- I love the Heather's soundtrack. The soundtrack for Heather's is really really great. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> I'm always uh, hesitant about these adaptations, you know. And I think that's valid because a lot of them come across very much as just like you you did this for name recognition instead of coming up with an original show. Yeah, and then it feels like both the show and like the material suffer because it's like these things weren't really necessarily made to be put into like a stage production to, to, to be, like, exist in this format. Like I saw the, I don't even know if it was on Broadway. I saw the when they did Christmas Story live a few years ago on TV. It was like Ugh. it was it was dreadful. It was bad. Yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. The, 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 that that one was really really bad. Yeah, because it's like these jokes don't work when you stretch them into like musical numbers. That's my always concern. Like when they take like a a joke that's like iconic because it's a famous line, but then they try and make a whole musical number around it. You around know, the, around the around the leg lamp. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like oh, this is funny as the gag in the movie works precisely because they don't overuse it. They don't overuse it, and the subtleties of the scene that make it feel like a genuine, like, emotional reaction for the characters feels a lot more natural when you're not trying to make a whole song about it, you know? Well, and it's also, the bit is a, ref- is a very funny reflection about the, di- of the frequently the dynamics between, like, a yuppie, white, sort of lower middle class husband and a wife of, like, she sets this as like she has decorated the home and she has an aesthetic sense, a cohesive aesthetic sensibility. Um, and, and his contribution is just to come home with this hideous thing and he doesn't understand why she doesn't like it. And it. And the fact that like, that he's not even looking at it for what it is. It's not even like the fact that it's a lamp. Like that doesn't even process in his mind. It's literally just I won this. Look at it. Like <laughs> look at I I won a thing. I did a thing. I'm successful. You know. Like it's a, it's a, it's a very layered joke that is a very that also just works as a basic sight gag. Right. And it's like you don't it we're like it's if you, we did the joke we did the joke perfectly in the movie you don't need to. <laughs> That's kind of what I felt about the uh, when they then they took um, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and then they did the movie adaptation starting the starting the movie off with the musical numbers of the dolphins singing you know so long and thanks for all the fish that joke really works well as a subtle one line gag and I felt like stretching that out for a musical number at the beginning of the movie doesn't fit. I have not seen the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie because I've never heard... I I really love that book and I wasn't going to... I didn't want to watch the movie if the movie wasn't perfect. Does that make sense? Yeah. I it has a cult following for sure, but I I I was introduced to Hitchhiker's Guide via the actually the I think it was like early eighties British television series. I saw that before reading anything. And the subtleties of the jokes come across very well in that show for me. You know that's like, because I actually got introduced to Discworld 
similarly, I saw the Hogfather, um, like TV movies. Huh. And I was like, oh, this is, and then I got older and I was like, oh, this is a book. <laughs> these are, these are books. <laughs> well, yeah, that was, that was it. I was just like, you know, I saw, I saw a DVD copy in the store and I was like, it seemed fun. <laughs> so. That's kind of how I was introduced. So. I'm not as familiar with Discworld stuff. Oh, Discworld, do you know, you know what, you like, you know what it is, right? Honestly, no. Oh my god, Terry Pratchett. Oh, okay, yeah, I've, I've, I know Pratchett, I just haven't been, uh, fully introduced to his writing. Um, so first of all, as a blanket thing lately, I think that Discworld is the best, is best to recommend to, um, lost Harry Potter fans. Okay. Who need, like, who, like, um, I think I think that they're very comparable um, reading experiences. Um, the Discworld books are an extremely large and expansive um, fantasy universe uh, written by Terry Pratchett, and they follow a, a vastly different periods of time and different casts of characters, um, but they center a lot around. Um, Magic, uh, one of the key characters, uh, is the embodiment of death, is the, basically the Grim Reaper, uh, and he's in the hot, there's, there's a <laughs> Hogfather adaptation of a Christmas special, where death basically has to be Santa. <laughs> um, and death has an adopted daughter, she's one of the primary, uh, she's one of my favorite characters in, in the, in the series. I haven't read every single one of the Discworld books, but they're all, And Discworld has got a very large and expansive um, lore and history that's all just very, 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 I I recommend them. I recommend them a lot. Okay, I'll have to give it a shot because his name constantly comes up in like authors that are trans supportive that you should follow instead of. There's there's this one excellent, one of the uh, excellent book, which I have to get to reading. This is actually one of the ones I haven't read, but I've heard people like citing these passages, um, which is explicitly um, an ex kind of, kind of an exploration of, of what, what gender is. What's the gender? Actually questions like what makes somebody a man or a woman. Um, because it's basically, it's a, it's a, impetus for the plot is like the Mulan thing of just like a bunch of women have to dress up as men. Um, to form a cavalry because they want to be in the, in the, in the army. Um, or in the navy, I think. And it, 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 the whole book just kind of begs the question of like, what is the, what makes, what defines the gender of a person? in how they dress and how you address them and how they present in the roles they play in society and like like it's it's just it's a wonder it's it's really really good it's really interesting <laughs> that's awesome and i've been yeah. meaning to get around to reading that specific book cuz i haven't yet but but yeah terry and terry pratchett was just famously a very kind um open openly supportive of uh the queer community that's and he's friends with Neil Gaiman. 
Yes. Um, Which is always my, a good sign. If you were friends with Neil Gaiman, I... My only experience of Patch was through watching Good Omens. Your own, that's your only experience with Neil Gaiman? No, no, Pratchett. Oh, with Pratchett. Yeah, Neil Gaiman, I've, I've, I've seen Sandman and okay, a bunch of the adaptations. Like, Coraline. <laughs> oh, and Coraline, duh. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah. he, K- Terry Pratchett co-wrote Good Omens with, with Neil Gaiman, yeah. Yes. And I like that show. I, I haven't read the book, so. <laughs> I know you did. You you dressed up like the leads. I remember that. I did, yeah, last Halloween, not this past year, but in 2021, my girlfriend and I were um, the angel and the demon from Good Omens, and it was it was very fun. It's my favorite, one of my favorite costumes I've ever done. You were Tenant? Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, okay. My brain's going like, I know you did that couple's costume, and I'm like, and I don't remember, like, you know. But yes, uh, cool. I, uh, I, I can't wait for season two of that show. It was very, uh, unique, to say the least. Probably in his year, though. Now we're gonna get a season two. Season two is apparently gonna make them explicitly a couple, and I'm really excited for that. Oh, finally. I felt that way the whole season. (laughs) Everyone did, including, fucking including Neil Gaiman. (laughs) <laughs> so when are they going to fuck? <laughs> well, I think they're asexual. Damn it. No, no, it's good. Our asexual... No, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not. ...to have that. Fair, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> as someone who was an asexual, that wasn't meant as a dick. That was just me being silly. That was just us wanting to see... Um, Wanting to see the actors fuck. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I also I did a lot of oh god the number the thing I, I've I've been I've been busy I've been busy peoples. Um, it's been a little bit. I saw Avatar: The Way of Water. We shall talk about. Well, we'll do a spoiler. To discussion of this at some point when I get around to it as well, and probably should have Ash on to do that because Ash is kind of like really into it. Um, well, what are your thoughts without spoiling? Um, my thoughts are basically the same as my thoughts are in the first one. It's very, very pretty. If you have the opportunity to see it in IMAX, I recommend doing that. Um, it's a beautiful, it's a very beautiful movie to look at. Um, it has very boilerplate, good, uh, liberal politics. Um, imperialism is bad. Be nice to the whales. I agree. Um, be nice to whales. Be nice to the whales. The first one was about being nice to the rainforest, and this one is about being nice to the whales. Um And you know, like the care, like the, these, this, these. This is a franchise built on extremely arch character archetypes and very basic boilerplate um, plots. And I don't actually consider that in and of itself a bad thing. 
because that's not the point. <laughs> like the 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 plot and the dynamic and dynamic characters isn't the point. The point is James Cameron creating these beautiful, like breathtakingly beautiful um, environments that are a, a lovely time to exist in and look at. Uh, and to flex his uh, passion for developing this technology that allows him to do that, and I I think that if you if you enjoyed the first like if you your memory of seeing the first one in theaters is I liked that that was a pretty time that will be your experience this time. So it's an Avatar movie. It's an av- it's the same as the first one. It's the same as the first one. Um, like every plot, the everything that happens to every single character is very very predictable. But again, like I don't consider that a bad thing in of itself. My only major, and I, I don't think this is a spoiler, but I really apologize if you're gonna get annoyed with me about it. My only major criticism is that the climax for this movie is way too fucking long. Okay. My issue is not that the movie is three hours and twenty minutes. James Cameron does that and generally speaking it tends to be he tends to use that time well like i don't consider my issue i don't think the movie is too long in and of itself but the climax drags and he either needed to do what he did with the first one where there's a break in the climax and you have to basically have two of them Uh where he puts a break in the action and then we go back to it or he just needed to slim the whole thing down. Because the climax, the big action climax scene is drags for a really long time and I stopped caring. Um, that's my only, that's my only major critique, honestly. The movie itself is exactly the movie I thought I was gonna get and I had a good time and it was very, it was worth carving out the time to go and see it in IMAX in 3D because it was beautiful. I see a lot of people on Twitter talking about how there's a lot of white dudes in dreads. Yeah, well, there's yeah. one. Okay, there's one. I, well, okay. <laughs> this is an issue with this franchise. Okay, so out, let's talk about the politics outside with outside of the confines of strictly the movie, which has a very unambiguous anti-imperialist uh, stance. Yes. Um, it is an issue for me that these these movies unambiguously um, utilize and appropriate um, imagery and cultural signifiers from indigenous people. Wait, Lizzie, are you are you telling me? That <laughs> well, old- primarily casting white people. <laughs> As the blue cats. Are are you telling me that the old white rich liberal likes to appropriate indigenous culture in his movie? That is an issue for me. <laughs> it is an issue. And I think that that is a fair, and I think, and also <laughs> based on James Cameron's recent statement I saw about the Lakota Nation, which I think is, um, Gross! Like it is a white. The narrative of this movie, of both of these movies, whilst um, 
like I said, like I think I've seen people say that these are um pro-colonialist movies, and I'm like, I don't know, that's just a stupid fucking statement because they're not. Um, th- these movies ha- unambiguously have an anti an anti-colonialist uh, message going on, but it's one coming from a white savior. And that is absolutely a, 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 a valid and worthwhile criticism of the films and especially of the casting. Like there's too many white people in this, in this cast. Um, there's, oh, there is, there's one human, expl- like guy who's just human and in a human body the whole movie who's white and has dreads. And I remember just the whole time I was staring at it and I was like, this wasn't necessary. You didn't need, you could have your feral little Tarzan kid. Without, <laughs> without, without the dreads. So yeah. And then Jake Sully, who we don't, is not human in this movie anymore. He's in his avatar body, Navi avatar body permanently. Um, didn't he, like, his human body die? It didn't. He chose to let it die at the end of the first movie. Okay, I need to rewatch it. It's it's a lot to remember, but I do remember that because I remember the, la- the last shot of the movie is him choosing to have his soul, like, permanently transferred into the Avatar body and letting the human body die. Um uh, and that is a thing that they can do because they establish it earlier when a different character died. Yes. Tried to do it and it failed. I remember. You remember, I yeah. Um, but. And that Jake Sully in his avatar body has dreads. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah, I don't like that. That is a valid, and I think that that's a valid point of conversation to have about these movies, is that these are extremely white savory uh, narratives. And the narrative, here's the thing, the conceit of the movie, like from its title, right, which is that these white people are creating, are like bioengineering the skin and body, emptied out husk body, of indigenous of the indigenous people of this land to literally put their minds into that's weird and yeah. you, is and I think it's very, very when you're looking at it through the lens of this obvious uh metaphor for indigenous peoples um it gets extra gross Yeah. Um, and if you, and if, and I don't begrudge anybody for being uncomfortable from the conceit up with that. Because only a white man would think of that. <laughs> <laughs> a, a white man with an ego problem. Yeah. So yeah. like, I'm, I'm not here to defend Avatar against, um, those criticisms. I think they're all very valid <laughs> and come from an entirely correct uh place. I think you can have multiple mindset or like thoughts on said art, right? I know yeah. you enjoyed it and I enjoy the first one. I need to watch it again. I don't know what my, my thoughts will be after <laughs> watching it for the second time, but um I'll probably enjoy both, but 
I think it's also important to understand when something fails and feels weird. I actually talked about this in my midterm. So for my midterm in one of my classes in grad school this past semester, I wrote about literally I wrote about um the uh depiction of indigenous people of uh, in American westerns. Okay. Um and kind of the evolution of that. Um and that was, like, first of all, I just really liked writing that paper. I feel like I learned a lot. I did a lot of research, and I really enjoyed um, reading. I really enjoyed reading a lot of um, film analysis from indigenous people. Uh, I found that to be a really enlightening and educational experience, and I enjoyed writing that paper. Um, and, but one of the things, I never really found the place or the, the space in any of the things I was writing to to talk about Avatar specifically a lot, but it was this exact issue was one I kept coming back to in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, which is that I'm like, like the same way that I feel like the way when we were doing our Twilight retrospective, do you remember how I kept like every single episode? I would be like, hi, Stephanie Meyer has given no money to the Quileute tribe after appropriating their. Yeah, no, I think that was a really important. Now, I kept bringing that up. I have, like, I have this same issue with James Cameron. Is it's like you appropriated the 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 um, genocide? Like, put aside, I guess, the culture because there's no one specific uh, tribe that he like appropriated any of this imagery from. He kind of it's kind of a, a pan indigenous. It's amalgamation of different. Um, yeah thing that he was going for but like you appropriated the genocide of these people mm-hmm. for your big budget Hollywood movie starring a white man mm-hmm. and it does not sit right with me that you did that and made all of this money and that mo- the majority of that money did not then go back to the communities who are still suffering the fallout of that genocide. Yeah, that doesn't sit right with me either. Um that's what I think and I so like and I think that James I assume the best in people, which might be a folly in me as a person, but I just do. I assume the best intentions of people. No, I'm with you. I think I I so I, think I, he means that. I assume that James Cameron like sincerely cares about these issues that he is talking about in these films. Why, I, why else wouldn't he, he cover sincerely, it? Right? I believe that he is sincerely horrified and angered at the um, violent at, at the at the violent genocide of um, Native Americans with the colonization of the United States. I believe that. I believe that he wants to save the rainforest. I believe that he wants to save the whales. I believe that he cares very sincerely about the environmentalists, the environmentalism that he's pushing, the environmentalism and anti-imperialism that he's pushing in his in his films. I believe that wholeheartedly. But he is also not listening to the people that he claims to care about. Um, and he is doing this in his rich, uh, his incredibly wealthy white man way. Yeah. Um, and not using any of that wealth, um, to actually help these people in a way that is material and, and, and seeable to them. 
And I think he should. I think so, too. Well, maybe he will at some point. Don't know, though. <laughs> I don't have no, I have no way of making it happen. I can just want. Uh, that's true. I was, I know you were, you said you were working on a, on, you know, a project about, um, the way that, like, indigenous people are, like, basically, like, represented in, like, westerns and stuff. Um, yeah. Um, did you run across the newer show, The English, yet? No, because I was most, so I was mostly talking about, the center of that paper was, um, Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. I primarily was talking about stuff um, up into the 90s. Oh, okay. Really get much, because I was talking about how Spirit um, acted as, like, that was the center point of piece of the paper, and I was reflecting a lot on, like, how that film specifically was um, actively responding to and chastising um, indigenous people's depictions of indigenous people prior to that. Like, like I was, I was, like, I was specific, specifically reflecting on that. Um, so I didn't really get to anything after after the 1990s. Yeah, that's fair. I I only brought it up because like I just finished watching it and I thought it was a pretty decent show. Uh, have you heard of it? No. Where's it? Where's it? Where's it streaming? Uh, Amazon Prime. It stars. Um, Emily Blunt, and I think is how it's pronounced his name is Chask, Chask, Chasky, Spencer. Uh, he was in the Twilight films actually, but, uh, it's, uh, it's about like, uh, uh, an English woman. Uh, she comes to, uh, the U.S. in the 1890s, I believe, um, with the basically assumed Assumption. There's more to the story than what what initially says, but she's looking for revenge about the man who killed her son, and simultaneously she runs into um, an indigenous ex cavalry member because uh, he was served in the Civil War, and they eventually basically have to like work together, and there's kind of like a romantic thing vibe. Okay, that sounds really cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I, I don't think I've seen many like westerns where like the lead is is an indigenous man. Uh, I can't think of like a lot that like, especially like you know that Hollywood has produced. So I don't know if that still is an interesting topic for you. That might that might be a good a good binge on Amazon. Oh, yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, uh, great performances. Uh, you know, it's a Western, so there's some cool action moments, a lot of interesting character moments and, and, and a reflection on like the, uh, the violence and oppression of indigenous people. So totally worth, uh, worth a, worth a watch. I think it's only six episodes. Yeah, only six episodes. So easy binge. Um, And, uh, yeah, I think <laughs> moving on from said topic, I know you wanted to talk about another show that you binged. 
<laughs> so while I was writing my finals, I decided for some godforsaken reason that my background noise was going to be BoJack Horseman. <laughs> and I actually, I had never watched season six. I think, I think that after season five, I felt it, I, I it felt too much. Um, and so I had put off watching season six. Um, but right. The first time, and I don't know, like something, season five got so, so heavy and my, I could, I, into, like, I don't know, I guess I didn't think I could handle it at the time. Um, but having now seen season, this was, the, so this, uh, this was the first time I saw season six in this binge of, of BoJack Horseman. Um, and I have a lot of thoughts and feelings I want to, I would love to reflect about. Uh, I would love to hear your reflections on it. Um, I I, I love it. (laughs) It's a perfect, I don't think there's not a lot of TV shows that have had such a perfect ending. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it maintains. I've always felt. I've always felt this way about BoJack Horseman. Um, We're gonna do spoilers, by the way. So yes, this is full of spoilers. I'm sorry. I've always felt this way about BoJack Horseman, which is that people, I think, incorrectly assess that this show is uh, pessimistic. No, it's not. And I really it's- don't think it is. I understand why. From like looking in. It feels that way, uh-huh. but I really, really don't. I think that this is a very optimistic show because it, at its core, I think that this show is is telling us that it you it is and anybody can change and anybody can be can be better. Yep. And it's telling us that it's but that it's our decision. Like it is very much it is of it is a show that is of the opinion that it is always within your power to be the person that you want to be. Uh it feels a lot about self love too. It is And I understand, I really do understand how people can feel like it's not can can feel that it's not like it's not about that. But because Bojack so consistently refuses to to change and to yeah. get better, and I feel like because of that, because the fact that Bojack keeps consistently refusing to take the opportunities presented to him to be better, um, people walk come away from it thinking that the point, thinking that it, it's it, the show is saying that people don't change. And I think people confuse, I think, I think it's easy to confuse the fact that Bojack shoot, keeps choosing not to with you can't. But the fact that Bojack's, the fact that these are his mistakes, I think is the thing that's so, is what's so important and vital there. Well, and his, uh, Immaturity, um, and arrogance also play into that. 
he's, he's he wants these things to not be his fault. He wants it so badly, but he gets it in his own way. And he gets it in his own way, and it's so it's. Which I think was also it for me with season five is I got to a point where I was just like, I can't watch this man fuck up his own life anymore. <laughs> it can't make it. It's very hard to make me angry. Understandable. Which I, I think, think was the point. I think they wanted us to be that frustrated by season five. But I was just like, I was like, you keep getting these chances. You keep getting them. I was so, I got to, I was so frustrated. I was like, you have everything. You have this little sister that loves you, and you have a woman that wants to date you um, who is age-appropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And have a hit TV show, and your your career is revitalized and successful, and your friends want to be around you, and you are still ruining it for yourself. Um, and here's the thing. Rewatching the show... Um, I'm reminded, like, you know, I'm, rem- I, there's a retrospect to it, obviously, but there's something about the first two seasons of BoJack, um, you kind of are, you are very much still on BoJack's, on his side, like, it feels wrong to say on his side, because you're never not on his side, necessarily, like, you always are rooting for him to do better, but, like, you fall. No, you, you believe yeah. Bojack's own narr- own self narrative, mm-hmm. kind of with very little question, up until what happens with Penny. Yeah. And hit watching it again. I had the same experience that I did, even knowing I like I knew I knew all of the places that the show was going to go. But even again, like, there's just something about that moment where he keeps the door open and lets her walk in that just so immediately radically alters everything about your perception of this character and his struggles. And that kind of makes you, like, see it. Seven. It makes it real. It makes it really, really real. Because, almost because, like, before this, <laughs> before that moment, most of the other shitty things he did really, like, first of all, only affected affected people directly in his life who chose to be in his life. Um, like even the worst of things that he did, they are things that largely came from like people that he like that he were there by be- like because Diane chose to be his ghostwriter, she could have walked away at any point, and herb was his friend, and yes, he betrayed his friend, but like herb was there like these are people who made choices mm-hmm. as much as Bojack did. And the thing about, like, Charlotte's family and with Penny is that Bojack just turned up on their doorstep expecting them to fix everything for him. Mm. And he inserted himself into the lives of these people and destroyed it. He wanted the easy way out. Yeah. 
He thought yeah. that Charlotte was going to fix everything for him. And when she didn't, his, her, when she didn't, her daughter felt, at least for a moment to him, like a good enough substitute. Yeah. And it's, it's such a turning point. That whole episode, I think the two key scenes, obviously, is that and the thing where he drops, just abandons her friend. That's right. At the emergency room. Mm-hmm. I think that both of the those those elements in that episode are really, really important. It's a hard episode to watch. <laughs> it is. Um, but that's such it's such a it's it's such a turning emotional turning point in the way you perceive this character and the story that the show is telling you. That's just so very, very impactful. <laughs> it really and makes things like very go, clear. I could I could go back into this show knowing all of this. Mm-hmm. And still feel like still feel that impact, still feel that change and that shift and like, oh, I think speaks a lot to the quality of the writing. <sighs> okay, and then of course there's Sarah Lynn. Yes. Which is um one of <laughs> the thing one of the single like just most tragic uh characters I think in the history of television. Oh yeah. Uh, and her whole life is tragic. <laughs> makes me. I'm every single time. Like I'm never okay watching that episode where she uh, where she dies. It's really hard for me. Yeah. It's just. I think what hits so hard in this show is that everything, like conceptually wise about it, like from like a very outside looking in it just seems like another one of those like funny talking animal adult cartoon sitcoms you know mm-hmm. like i think it i think that's what drew people away at the beginning because it felt like that and obviously that's still a uh comedy's a critical role to this entire show but it also was was deeper Yes, uh, no, absolutely. Um, and the choice of who's a human and who's an animal, I think, is really, really vital. Yeah. Um, to the way that you tell the story. Like, beyond uh, the fact that first, just as a starting point, it allows for, yes, it allows for a lot of really funny sight gags. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, it... It also allows you to shorthand information about these characters. Yeah. Really efficiently and effectively. Like a lot of, like the fact that Bojack is a horse, the fact that Princess Carolyn is a cat, um, the fact that Ralph was a mouse and she was a cat, like these, that Mr. Peanut Butter is a dog, like specifically a golden retriever. 
Um, You're right. It does signify something. It, it informs a lot about them as as characters and as people, and I think it's it's just such an ingenious storytelling device for a show like this. And I don't think the tone of the show would work nearly as well. What if it was all people? If it was all just people, yeah. I think having it be animals definitely is sort of a um, a good way to have it like one step away from reality. You know what I mean? Like, I think it helps keep a lot of the heavy emotions at an arm's length, and you're able to better parse the comedy with the tragedy. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, when Sarah Lynn dies, it's immensely tragic. It's her last line is I always wanted to be an architect hmm. and I can't cope with that. I think that's the point. <laughs> oh, I, I know that's the point. I know the point like, because it, it, it brings immediately rushing to your mind about how much better and safer and happier this little girl's whole life could have been if her mom had just let her want to be an architect. And in a harsher way, if she hadn't met Bojack. And it, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He certainly was the best of influences on her. God. No, and I think I think that <laughs> God. And then I think it's really easy when we first meet Sarah Lynn in season one and she and Bojack have sex. It's oh, depth, right, yeah. the depth of how fucked up that is. Uh. <laughs> like it takes a little while to sink in. Because she's, like, 30 years old, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of weird. But, like, you don't really think about it that much. In part because also season one has a much lighter tone than the rest of the show. But, like... The depth of just, like, how horrible it is that he did that. Yeah. Oh, God. Like, it just comes so much more into sharp relief the more flashbacks we get to him and Sarah Lynn interacting when she's literally a little child. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Because he's sort of like a surrogate father figure, in a sense. Very blatantly. She is the only, he is the closest thing to a real father figure she's ever had in her life. Uh-huh. And that wasn't even real. It was, well, like, the only thing, the closest thing to, like, a happy, stable father-daughter relationship she had her entire life was when she and Bojack were acting on their show. 
Not even in between takes did that persist, but it was only there. And when you're as little as Sarah Lynn is, like explicitly is supposed to be at the start of that show, uh-huh. that kind of being able to distinguish the emotions between the reality and the acting is basically impossible and does and will inform her emotional attachment to this human being as she grows up and as she looks back on her childhood. And that's so sad. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Her stepfather in the show who, um, almost certainly was uh, sexually abusing her from the time that she was very little. Um, just compounds the track. Like, it's so, it's so, it's, it's just consistent tragedy after tragedy. Um, and so when you get to the, um, the dinner scene and the view from halfway down. I was going to bring up, I did want to talk about the view from halfway down because that episode is. <laughs> I'll get to, I'll, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I, <laughs> you get to the view from halfway down and, and she's, I'm not talking about my death. I'm talking about my life. I gave my whole life. I just can't. Oh my God. I kind of just really fucking can't. Uh, (laughs) And then the revelation in season six that Bojack left her. He left her there for 17 minutes. Yeah. To save his own ass. the most despicable thing he's ever done. Yes. And I can't... (laughs) He left her there. He left her there. For 15 minutes, he fucking left her there. And I... The View from Halfway Down is a very, very good episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I think it's, if not the best episode, uh, I think Free Churro is also fantastic. Uh, I don't know what's my favorite between the two of them. And I think especially Secretariat slash uh, Butterscotch. <laughs> um, the titular speech, I think, um, probably gets me the most. But the whole episode, it's just...
I needed Bojack to not die. Um, because I think that if he had died, I think if the show ended with Bojack dying and being dead, I think that would have been too much. That would have been a retribution for him. I think that would have been detrimental to the message the show was, yeah. was trying to tell. That would have been the easy way out for that character. It would have. I think Bojack dying would have been too easy for him. Um, and I don't think that he, I think, I think it, People are virtuized in death, and people are forgiven in death, and people are, you, don't think that that's what he needed. No, he needed the to work. <laughs> he needed to do the work. And yeah. I, and he had to keep trying. Um... And I really like in the last episode, um, Todd has that great speech um, that he gives Bojack. And I really, really like just the basic line where Bojack says, um, something like, and what happens, and when I relapse, what happens if I relapse again? And Todd just says, then you get sober again. Uh-huh. Which I think, which to me is, is the point. very much feels like they want people to keep trying. Is you keep trying. Yeah. But I also think, from what I remember in that speech, Todd, like, basically also draws the sand in the line, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, they all, I feel like all the characters are, like, you know, keeping Bojack at a distance. They all need to, and I think... You know, he says to Diane, he said, wouldn't it be funny if this is the last time we ever talk to each other? And we don't know. We don't know if this is the last time they ever speak to each other. But it's very clear that Diane is done with him. And that that is what is the best and that is the best for her. Yes. Um, If there is a character here who can keep Bojack in their life. It's Mr. Peanut Butter, which is hilarious. And (laughs) but as you know, as as funny as he is, he's also a massive fucked up too. Yeah. Um. And I think I think the fact that Princess Carolyn invited him to her wedding um, in and of itself um, is speaks to the fact that. An arm's length doesn't mean gone. Mm-hmm. And that people, maybe your relationship to people needs to change, but that doesn't mean that people need to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't think Princess Carolyn is going to leave his life forever after this. She invited him, like she invited him here after all. Um, and I think, but I think Diane is. I think that he and Diane need to not and that's clearly been for the best. And I need to talk, okay, I need to talk about Diane. Um, Diane is my favorite character on this show, and she always has been, which anybody who remembers maybe back in the day of the earlier seasons, 
Um, that was not always an easy position to have. I feel like a lot of hate for her is also a lot of misogyny. And it, 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 yes, it is. Um, <laughs> but there, because there was a period of time where people really, really hated Diane. Um. People really, really hated Diane. Uh, people, sorry, <laughs> my nephew is uh, wants, <laughs> wants to hang out with me. Um, people really hated Diane. Um, but Diane has always been the character that I've related to the most and I've connected to the most. And in the last season, she gets on antidepressants. That's right. And she gains weight, which I love. They just make her character model bigger and they really don't say much else about it. Yeah, I don't think they do. It's that way. And she is happier. <laughs> she gets on the antidepressants and they work and it makes her happier. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot for me. That was a really, that was really, really, really important to me. And the fact that at the end of it all, once she got on her antidepressants, um, when she realized that what she needed actually wasn't, to write this long personal memoir. Right. That was a really big revelation that she about, like wanted about, to make a about her abuse and her damage that what she just needed was to write this happy teen girl detective middle school book. She was putting too much pressure on herself. There is no good damage. It's just. Damage. Damage. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that scene hits. And you're not gonna get better until you accept that. Because there's this pressure and expectation that you turn your damage into gold. Mm-hmm. And that's not what she needed. Diane did not need to wallow in her damage and she didn't need to spin it. Um, into uh, marketable material. She just needed to write her happy teen girl detective novel. I also kind of like that it's implied that that like she wants to like make this big impact and like use her damage to create something that's super meaningful and will change people's lives. But like this happy teen detective uh, story could also do the same for someone in need, right? It could absolutely be the thing that someone needs. Right. Um, And I think that that... I'm trying not to cry because this meant a lot to me, and especially, like I said, I was watching this um, while I was writing for my finals in grad school and so having this whole part where diane is like freaking out because she can't get herself to write the thing that she quote unquote needs to write 
Yeah. Just on a literal level was so like I like to, an emotional state that I felt very, very heavily. Um Well, if you need to cry, you can cry. <laughs> no, it's fine. This show, so yeah, no, it was it was a per it was it. The show was perfect. The show was perfect. The ending for the show. I know we talked a lot of spoilers. Uh, if you've not seen Jack Horseman and heard all of this, I think you could still enjoy the show. <laughs> um, you should still watch it for sure. You should still watch it. Uh, Probably one of the best things Netflix Netflix has ever made, if not the best. It gets the uh, the gal's seal of approval. And that's a very. I would, uh, I would agree. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm glad you finished it. I'm very happy about that. I finished it, and I finished my finals. You you did all the good things. Success. Success. And you did it in time. Uh, certain holidays coming up. wonder what that could be. I think it's called Christmas. Christmas. The Day of Magic. The Day of... Presents. Um... Christ the Holy Savior was born, I think. Oh, um, he's that guy that TikTok is making all of those Taylor Swift edits to. (laughs) Oh, that dude. That dude, yeah. The dude that that history whitewashed? (laughs) Have you seen any of those, by the way? You sent me one. Wait, there wasn't just one? No, there's been a oh, God. at least five. Um, I and I, the implication I'm getting from other people is that there are many more. I don't Oh no. <laughs> oh, the internet. I, I really, really I don't know what <laughs> That's a good, Why that's a good statement. Just, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yes, it is Christmas. Are you looking forward Jolly to Christmas? Time. What? Are you looking forward to Christmas? I am. My family's doing Christmas two days late. Um. Oh, okay. Not for any any reason that uh, okay. So my 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 brother is spending Christmas Day with his uh, boyfriend with his family in Chicago, which is far away from where we live. Um, and then they're supposed to, they the plan was they were going to do Christmas there, and then we were going to do Christmas here, and they were going to fly in on the twenty sixth. And my mom was just so upset about the fact that they weren't going to be here that she was like, "What if we all just did Christmas Christmas Eve on the twenty sixth and Christmas Day on the twenty seventh?" And it's like, okay. All right. Well. We're all either adults or we are children that are far too young to um, read a calendar. 
So it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it works. It works. I'm probably just going to spend time quietly at home. Probably watch a few movies. That's a that's 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 a solid plan. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm going to see that Spirited movie on Apple with uh, Ryan Reynolds and uh, Will Ferrell. What's it about? I don't think I've seen this. I don't think I've seen this one advertised. It's uh, it's a musical version of uh, Christmas Carol. Oh, so, that's, like, modern, that's modern day, and I, I think Ryan is Scrooge. Um, I'm having I'm having an image pop into my head, and I think you're right. Yeah, it seems it seems fun. Didn't get the best of reviews, but it didn't get bad reviews, so I'm sure it's just it's a good Christmas time movie. So, another modern take on Christmas Carol. Still doesn't beat Chris Muppets Christmas Carol as the best, though. I'm sure. <laughs> and I think with that sentiment, I think uh, I think this is a good point where we can wrap up our conversation. Uh, this is the last episode before Christmas. Um, do you have anything else to add, Lizzie? Um, have a holly jolly day. That is a, that is a, that is a valid sentiment, Dad. Um, do you want to plug where people can find you? Uh, you can find me at The Final Horror on TikTok or at Lizzie Lemon Drop on Twitter for as long as that exists. Yeah. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Crystal, Crystal W Rocks. Uh, and you can go to my bio on Twitter and see my link tree. And my link tree has all of my social media avenues, including Hive and Mastodon and Throne, where you can donate stuff and all this good stuff. Uh, so go do that. Um, thank you for listening to another episode of the Gals of Geekdom podcast. We will be back probably next week with a new episode, hopefully before the year ends. Uh, if not, we will all, you'll all hear us in the new year. Uh, thank you for listening. Have a happy Christmas. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.